today. Paul, you sound good too. Thanks. Um, before we get started, just uh, we, we mentioned this last week, but just want to call your attention to uh, one of the things that's the, just the best part of being a, a church family, and uh, that is baptism. So up at camp, a bunch of us were up at camp the last two weeks. I was only there one. Uh, but in, in fact, the way you can tell the people who have been up at camp in northern Minnesota is the ones that look like they came back with leprosy because... There are so many bugs in northern Minnesota. They've got bug bites everywhere. So uh, they just got back. We had, a, we had an excellent time, an excellent time at camp. Uh, there were three baptisms up there, one of whom was our very own Andrew Thompson, who was baptized last Friday. Which is awesome. His, uh, his dad and mom uh, drove up four hours from here to camp to participate in that because that's how important it was. And, and I think like four hours, that's dedication. And then one of the kids that wanted to get baptized, I think it was last Thursday, her parents lived 12 hours away. And so, wow, that's a real test of like, hmm, how important is this to be there? They showed up, they got up at like 5 a.m. and drove all the way to camp, baptized her, spent the night, and drove all the way back. So that's how, I mean, that, that's just, it's such a minor sacrifice, but that's how important it is for, for us to participate in people taking this step of faith. So we're excited for that. Um, uh, I, I am not typically in the habit of trying to ruin beloved children's stories for you, but... Uh, and maybe not ruin, maybe enhance is a better way to say that. Uh, but all of us, most of us, have seen the movie Bambi, the Disney classic Bambi, and we loved it, and we got all excited, and of course we cried, you know, when, I don't want to spoil anything, but when Bambi's mother, uh, something happens to Bambi's mother. It's an 80-year-old movie, so if you haven't seen it. Um, but the, uh, the thing that you might not know about the story is that it was actually originally adapted from a German uh, book or is written in German by an Austrian author uh, named Felix Salt Saltman. And uh, he was the grandson of a rabbi and he wanted to write an allegory about how he felt Jewish people were being treated in Europe. And so instead of just writing an essay about it, he wrote a story about you know, deer being hunted by the bad guys. And it puts a whole different spin on the story when you understand what he was trying to communicate. Now, this, you're, you're thinking like, that, that can't be right. So you're saying the hunters are the Nazis. Is this some sort of like, hunt, you know, anti-hunter? No, 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 not, not, not that at all. But it was, it's subtext that people picked up on that maybe we don't. We watch the Disney movie and we're engaged in the story and get all emotionally involved, but people picked up on it. And this is true. Google this if you want, if you don't believe me. But Hitler banned the book Bambi in 1936 because he knew the power that this story would have to kind of like deter somebody from, from the, his way of thinking. Now, it wasn't because this author got up and said, hey, I'm going to write about how bad Nazis are. I mean, I think that we can I think that's pretty, should be pretty universal. But it's not because he got up and did that. It's because he wrote a story about a deer. And that story kind of got beneath people's defenses and into people's psyche. And it started to like transform them. And Hitler was like, ah, this is bad news. We got to ban this story. So the, the story that we're talking about today is, is so much like that. Because in the same way, Jonah is not a children's story about a prophet and a fish. And I know it's been offered to us that way, that it's just this kid's story, Jonah and the big fish. And that's what it is. And it's about this fish. Of course, the fish only shows up in three verses or in the original Hebrew, two sentences. But that's what we've made the story about. But Jonah, in fact, most children's stories just eliminate Jonah chapter four, which 
which is the meat and potatoes of the book of Jonah. Um, but it's not a children's story about a prophet and a fish. There's something much deeper happening in this story. And what happens to us is that we kind of get caught up in the story. And then all of a sudden, right at the end, we realize like Jonah's holding up a mirror to us and our lives and the way that we engage with God's mercy and the way that we share God's mercy to the world around us. And all of a sudden, we find ourselves kind of indicted by the story. We didn't realize that we were the bad guy in the story. We thought we were just reading this crazy tale about this guy that runs from God. And you're forced to see yourself. How would I react if I disagreed with God, like in Jonah chapter 1? It wasn't just that he was disobeying. That's too simple. He could have stayed home and disobeyed. He ran because he disagreed with what God was trying to accomplish through him. How would I react if I disagree with God? What happens when me and God aren't on the same page? How do I react if God allows incredible difficulty into my life, like in Jonah chapter 2, where we read, and this is something I just, it's so funny that we don't think about this, but Jonah, according to the story, is swallowed by this fish, and while he's evidently inside the digestive tract of the fish, he's composing poetry. In Jonah chapter 2, Jonah chapter 2 is this, this, this epic poem that he writes. You know, does he have a little candle in there? What's he doing in there? But he is in the middle of like an incredibly difficult circumstance, and this is how he interprets that situation. And he writes this, this poem to God about God's mercy and God's salvation for himself. And then the end of Jonah chapter 2, I shouldn't keep pointing this out, but I like it. Jonah chapter 2, the Bible says that the fish, what? Jonah onto dry land. Yeah, I got you to say vomited. I love that. I love that. The fish threw Jonah up onto dry land, and Jonah's like, okay, now what? Now what? And we get to Jonah chapter 3, and that's where we're going to start today. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. Jonah chapter 3 and verse 1. Then the word of the Lord came to Jonah a second time. It's pretty significant. A second time. Go to that great city of Nineveh and proclaim to it the message I give you. Now remember, in the story so far, Jonah had been asked by God. He said, God said, go up. In the original Hebrew language, God said, get up and go to Nineveh. And the language says Jonah went down to Joppa and down to the ship and down inside the ship and then down into the sea. So Jonah's doing every step of the way. He's doing the exact opposite of what God had asked him to do. And then in chapter 3, God says, all right, Jonah, get up. Original language again. Our, our translations kind of hide this. Get up. And it says, Jonah got up. And I'll bet he did. Jonah's been through some things since the first time he's received that commandment. Things are a little bit different than, than the first time God called him. And you notice it's the same command, but a different reaction. It says in verse, the first part of verse 3, Jonah obeyed the word of the Lord and went to Nineveh. I don't know if you've ever noticed this, and I suppose it's a feature of getting older, but truth hits us differently. The same truth hits us differently at different points in our lives. Have you ever noticed that? Something that you've read hundreds, thousands of times in the Bible, something that you've heard over and over and over again, at some point in your life, it just hits you differently. And it's not because the truth has changed, but because you have changed. That God is doing something in your life, and because of that, the way that you interact with scriptures is completely different. I mean, this is one of the reasons that we just never get it figured out. And I know, like, we tend to be a little presumptuous about, like, well, you know, I've, I've read the Bible. I, I got the basic gist of it. It's not the way it works. It's not about getting the gist of the Bible. It's about God changing your life. And when you interact with different scriptures, when you interact with those commands, you interact with them differently because of what God has done in your life. Now, I'm currently right now in my own reading, reading through 2 Samuel. And, I mean, I'm telling you, I like... I, 
I work at a church. I've grown up in a church. And there's stuff in there that I'm like, I'd never noticed this before. Like, I'm such a dummy. How did I not see this? This is so good. Like, stories, like, what in the world? This is why we can just never say, you know what? I finished the Bible, closed it, it's done. I'm good, because that's not the way God works. It's eternal truth. It's unchanging truth. But we change. We, we, we don't get it all figured out. And it's not just about what God is doing in the Bible, but what about God, what God is doing in your life? All right, the plot in Jonah is about to thicken. He's been given this command by God. And in verse 3, second half of verse 3, now Nineveh was a very large city. It took three days to go through it. It's a giant. Jonah began by going a day's journey into the city, proclaiming 40 more days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And that's all he said. That's it. He walked one-third of the way into the city, and he said, 40 days and Nineveh will be overthrown. And as far as the text reveals, he got out of there. He bailed. That's it. That's it. I mean, I don't, you know, who am I to judge what is a good sermon and what isn't, but that does not seem like a very good sermon. Now, some of you are like, well, hey, at least it was short, Patrick. <laughs> Come on. What? Seven words, eight words, like Jonah preached and got out of there. But there's so many things that it feels like aren't really addressed in this, in this story. I mean, what are the Ninevites being judged for? Now, remember, Nineveh is the capital of Assyria. So by, uh, by you know, whatever, thinking Nineveh is representative of all Assyria. And Assyria is just this, like, violent, awful empire. And they have lots to be judged for. But Noah, Noah doesn't, or Jonah doesn't even bring that stuff up. He just says, 40 days, you guys got 40 days, get your affairs in order, you're going to be overthrown. That's all he says. There's no references to God. He doesn't even mention God in this sermon. Like, can you imagine preaching a sermon and not even bringing up God? There's no text. There's no call afterwards. Like, let's all sing 12 verses of just as I am. There's nothing like that in this sermon. It's just, here's the words, and that's it. It's almost, it's almost like Jonah doesn't want people to repent. It's almost like Jonah wants the whole nation of Assyria to be condemned and judged and overthrown by God. It's almost like that. Foreshadowing, if you read chapter 4, it's exactly what Jonah wants. Uh, my my uh, son and I, Liam and I, went to a Cinco de Mayo festival uh, on the 4th of May, of all things. And it was one of those perfect days. And so the whole, they had blocked off the street. And the street was, I mean, just packed with people. Like you couldn't hardly move. You had to edge your way forward. Just packed with people. Packed with humanity. Uh, and I snapped a picture of it, you know. And I was like, it's just, you know, it's gorgeous. All this delicious food. It's just awesome. Well, a couple uh, minutes after I took this picture... There walked by um, a guy who had a, a, uh, a sign on, attached to his back. And the sign was, of course, sticking up above the crowd. On the next slide, um, you can clearly pick him out, right, obviously. He's way, he's way in there in this crowd of humanity, and he's got this sign attached to his back. And I zoomed in on the picture if you go to the next slide. Um, and he, he's basically, the, the, the gist, well, the, the sign says, Christ has come to save sinners, which that's a, that's a good message. It's a good message. Um, but yeah, it's, it's good. Uh, how effective do you think he was at the Cinco de Mayo festival? Anybody? People are like munching on their tacos. Do you think like people were like, oh, sounds like I'm going to follow this guy. Where's he going? No, not at all. And I feel like this is such a good illustration of what it must have been like for Jonah to walk into this giant city and be like, you guys have 40 days. You're going to be overthrown. Nothing else, and then out. It's just like a guy wandering around the streets of St. Paul uh, with a sign. Now, the one advantage, the one advantage I can see to this is the crowd parted for him. 
Like the rest of us were waiting in big old lines, but he could get right up to the front real quickly. People were giving him plenty of room, and so maybe that was his strategy. Hey guys, I got this super quick way to get to the front of the line. I don't know what it was, but this guy was walking through the streets of St. Paul, head down, eyes to the ground, like he had lost a bet. He didn't look like he wanted to have a conversation with you about how Christ came into the world to save sinners. Didn't look, appear to be that way at all. And this to me, feels exactly what it must have been like to watch Jonah in the giant city of Nineveh walk through and say, hey, 40 days. I mean, was he shouting? Was he proclaiming? Did he have a sign? Was he whispering? I mean, we have, text just doesn't give us any clue at all. All we know is that Jonah technically obeyed God, technically obeyed God. You, you parents have had this phenomenon with children where they technically obey, and you're like, well, yes, yes, you obeyed, but that's not really what I was looking for. Have you ever tried to make your child apologize to another child when they didn't feel apologetic? Like the body language, the way that they say it conveys, I am not sorry at all, but I will say I'm sorry in order to avoid being overthrown by by God. And so Jonah technically obeys. Now this is, this is my speculation. There are lots of people who are like, no way, Jonah was, I mean, he was all in, he was doing the right thing. I don't buy it because you read Jonah chapter 4 and Jonah was not all in. This guy had some problems in his life that many of us do. I think he was just checking the box, doing the very minimum he had to do. I mean, I think it was a bad sermon. I think it was a bad sermon, but it was a very short sermon. No amens for short sermons? Noted, noted. I'm going to remember that. So, based on the small amount of information that we have in this story, how is this going to go? How's this going to go? How are people going to, is Jonah going to plant a new church? Is there going to be a synagogue? Are there going to be a bunch of new followers of God in the city of Nineveh? I mean, this is not looking good. This is as good, I don't know, I didn't follow up with the guy from the Cinco de Mayo Festival, but it feels like it's probably as effective as that guy. It doesn't feel like it's going to go well, but another twist, and this text is full of twists. The reason we don't see him is because we're overly familiar with the text and we lose like what God is doing through this text. There's another twist. And in verse 5, it says, the Ninevites believed God. And you're like, what? The Ninevites believed God through that sermon? Are you kidding me? That's all it took? What? The Ninevites believed God, and this is what happened. This is the result. A fast was proclaimed. Of course, you know, a fast is when you don't eat by intention, when you're hungry, in order to like express like remorse, in this case remorse, or sometimes prayer to God. And all of them, everybody in the city of Nineveh, everybody, the text says, least to greatest, or greatest to least, put on sackcloth. It's not something we do today. I don't know that we have an exact equivalent, but it would have been like, I'm going to find the most uncomfortable clothing that I can find in order to, I, I just want God to know that I don't deserve food. I don't deserve to be comfortable. In fact, the Bible talks about in other places how they just, they wouldn't comb their hair and they would like look dirty and they would sit in ashes so they look dirty and they're like, God, we're really, truly, deeply, madly sorry. We're really sorry. And this is how they expressed it. I mean, we don't have any functions like that. The pro- probably the closest is going forward after a sermon that would probably be the closest set we have when we really want to express sorrow or repentance to God but man note note this contrast this is crazy what did it take to get the Hebrew prophet of God to repent and do the right thing a storm getting thrown in the middle of the ocean and getting swallowed by a fish and then he was finally ready to do the right thing 
What did it take to get the entire city of Nineveh to do the right thing? A really bad sermon by a guy who doesn't even mention God in the sermon. Note the contrast. This is what the author is drawing our attention to. This giant contrast. Jonah is supposed to be the hero of the story. A prophet of God. A Hebrew prophet of God. He's supposed to be the good guy. The Ninevites, they're terrible people. They're supposed to be the bad guys. What is going on here? It's like the author wants us to notice this. And we'll see this more directly in just a minute. Verse 6. Now this is, this is cool. When Jonah's warning reached the king, Jonah didn't even say it to the king. It went viral and somebody passed it on. They're like, there's a, there's a dude walking around the street saying we have 40 days. When Jonah's message, when Jonah's warning reached the king of Nineveh, he rose from his throne. He went up like Jonah was supposed to, took off his royal robes, covered himself with sackcloth, and sat down in the dust. This is the king, the king of this giant empire. The emperor. This is his, his response to like eight sentences of like, hey, you need to get your act together. Immediately, immediately. Do you see that the author is trying to draw our attention to something here? Something really significant. And this is what the king does. This is pretty interesting. Verse seven. This is the proclamation he issued in Nineveh. By the decree of the king and his nobles, do not let people, and note this, this is kind of fascinating, or animals, herds or flocks, taste anything Do not let them eat or drink. This is an imposed fast on the entire city. Not even your pets. Don't even give your dog water. Nobody can eat or drink in the entire city. That's wild. Why the animals? Like what in the world is that about? What is going on? Verse 8. But let people and animals. So make little sock cloth, you know, sock, sackcloth, sock cloth, sackcloth, little you know, whatever, doggy outfits, and put them on the animals. And let everyone urgently call on God. Let them give up their evil ways and their violence. What in the world? What's the difference? Man, what, in, what is going on? Animals? What was that all about? And it's so strange. I've always wondered about it, but I, I believe the author wants us to notice how extreme the reaction and the repentance of the Ninevite people was, how extreme it was. I mean, they were, they were not cutting any corners. They were going as far as they could to show God that they were sorry. Well, who, who is who's that? That's confusing. Because the Assyrians, the Ninevites, those are the bad guys. If they made movies back in this time, they would always be the bad guys in the movies. When I was a kid growing up, it was always the Soviet Union. They were always the bad guys in every movie I watched. The bad guys always had Russian accents. And now the bad guys are something else. And the bad, There's always a bad guy. There's always, in World War II, the bad guys were the Nazis. There's always somebody, right? Or maybe it's ISIS now or whoever. Whatever you think is the enemy, this is what the author is telling us. The person you think, the group of people, rather, that you think is the worst possible people, these are the people who have soft hearts for God. And he's about to point something out that's not going to feel very good for God followers. He's saying, you God followers, you people who do have access to the scriptures, you people who do know love and do know and love God, I've been warning you for years and years and years. I want you to, I want you to in fact, the Assyrians were not only bad, but they were proud of their badness. I, I showed you a couple weeks ago the engravings that were found on the palace walls in Nineveh that of, of this destruction of these Hebrew cities. I mean, just awful stuff. Like I told you, stuff that if I tried to convey it, it would get the sermon an R rating because it is just nasty, awful stuff that the Assyrians had done to the Hebrew people. Yet, they repent immediately. They repent immediately. That's not supposed to be the narrative. 
And that's not supposed to be how stories go. This isn't, this isn't, this is wrong. Jonah, this is not, you've got it wrong. The bad guys don't do the right thing, and the good guys don't do the wrong thing. You've got it backward. That's not how it works. And the audience that was first hearing the story had that exact reaction. Nope, that's not how it works. Those are clearly the bad guys. They've done bad things. Have you ever noticed, have you ever noticed that we're, um, as humans, we're a little resistant to being corrected? A little resistant? Have you ever noticed, I mean, this is so funny because I can point out to times in my life where like I was maybe on my way to do something, but when someone said, hey, will you do that thing? It made me want to stop and not do it. Have you ever had an instance like that? Some of you are like, hmm, what's wrong with you? Yeah, a little defiance, a little rebellion kind of come up. Somebody just telling us the way things should be just makes us not want to do them that way. We're, we're a little resistant to being uh, corrected. And I was, I was trying to think of like good illustrations in my life. Typically what I do, and I know this makes everybody very nervous, but going through my week, if something significant happens, I'll like jot it down and I'll file it away in a little sermon illustrations file. It's not like I remember everything, I just file it away and then later when I'm working on sermons, I'm like, oh yeah, that crazy thing happened where the police officer got mad at me for stopping to let pedestrians, I'll tell you that some story sometime too. I got honked at by a police officer, can you believe that? It's the craziest thing. Anyway, and I was, I was obeying the law. Anyway, long story short. I was thinking about like, well, what about the stories in my life where I have been corrected by other people and I've been resistant? You know what? It dawned on me. I don't write those stories down. Because being corrected is this, this awful mixture of embarrassment and resent and anger and frustration. I don't write those down. I don't want to share stories where that has happened to me and I've been in the wrong and I've been upset and I've handled it poorly. I don't like stories like that. And so I realized, like, I have all these stories of things that have happened in my life. Not a single one of them has involved being corrected, not because I haven't been corrected many, many, many times, but because I don't like the feeling of it and I don't want to remember it and I certainly don't want to get up on stage and share it with you because I don't like being corrected. I don't like it. It doesn't feel good. There are just a few things in life that are a direct shot to pride in our lives. And being corrected by someone else is one of those few things. A direct shot. Just like hit, just cuts through everything. It's a direct shot to your, your pride and my pride. And I think we react. We react defensively. We deny. We excuse. Like, who do they think they are? Well, that wasn't me. I didn't do that. Well, I, I did it because I had to. And you don't understand the circumstances. I, um... I was, we were up at camp, and, and kids do some, some things. They get involved in shenanigans up at camp occasionally, and some kid had snuck into the kitchen and stole a tub of ice cream. Like, well, that's a bold shenanigan, and I have to correct it. I have to go, and it's hard to keep secret. It's a giant tub of ice cream. Like, hey, did you bring that with you? Yeah, I've had it in my freezer all week. Like, you can't keep, it's just like hard to really keep that on the down low. And so I had to go, I had to go up, and I'm like, hey, buddy, yeah, you know, you can't steal ice cream from the kitchen. He's like, well, I think you're, yeah, it was a, you know, and he's just like, no, dude, you've got like, you know, you know, chocolate chip dust on your, you know, lips. Like, you're, you, you did it. Everybody saw you. You're guilty. Just admit it. And we just, we don't, we don't want to admit it, even when we're caught red-handed. We don't want to admit that we're in the wrong. And in fact, when someone does, it's kind of notable. Have you ever been around someone who, like, admitted they did something wrong? And you're like, whoa. There was, uh, I mean, I know politics, right? It's fun to talk about politics. But 
We're in the middle of a political season, and there's feels like there's a bazillion candidates running for president. And of course, you know, all these candidates have these very public histories. And so they'll get interviewed by journalists, and they'll say, well, yeah, back in 1972, you said this one thing, and, you know, what did you mean by that? And of course, there's all these equivocations. There's all these long explanations about how I was right, and that's not what I meant, and all this stuff. But this one candidate, somebody was like, well, this happened, and you did this, and the candidate said, I was wrong. And the interviewer paused because they were expecting the person to go on and continue to explain how it's not that bad, and they stopped and said, I was wrong. And the reason I know this is because there was an article written that it was so notable that a candidate had just blanketly admitted they were wrong that it made a headline. They made a headline about it because it was so unusual that someone would say, I was wrong. It's so unusual. Now, in my relationship with my spouse, there are the rare occasions when I am a I am wrong. It does happen. I know. Shocking. Right. And I'm not good at admitting it. And when I do, my, my wife will inevitably say, if I, if I say something like, I, yeah, you're right. You're right. If I say that, you know what she does? She doesn't graciously say, well, thank you for saying that. She'll go like, now, what was that again? Huh? Can you say that louder? Yeah. You're, you're right? Yeah. And then she'll be like, let the record reflect. On July 7th at 11.30 a.m., Patrick has declared that he is wrong. Today shall henceforth be known as Patrick is wrong day, you know. Because of pride. Pride. And it's about the silliest things. It's about the silliest things. We don't like to admit that we're wrong. But this is so important. Our inability to admit when we're wrong is one of the ways we most damage our relationship with God. Our inability to admit when we're wrong is one of the ways we most damage our relationship with God. Because one of the things that God is doing in your life is transforming you. And if you will never admit that you've ever taken the wrong path or if you've ever done anything wrong, how is God supposed to work with that? It damages our relationship with God. That pride welling up damages our relationship with God. Let me, let me read you something. I know this is a, out of Jonah, but real quickly out of Jonah, I want you to read something out of the book of Amos, uh, chapter 2. Um, Jonah, of course, is found in a section of the Bible called the Minor Prophets, and they're called Minor Prophets because they're short books of prophecy. And about one-third of the Bible is prophecy. Um, we think of prophecy as like, you know, somebody telling the future, and that's not what most of prophecy is. It's a very minor percentage of what actual prophecy is. Most of the time, prophecy is like getting in someone's face and telling them that they need to shape up. That's most of what prophecy is. So, one-third of the Bible is these records of these guys getting in the face of the Hebrew people and saying, you guys need to shape up. That's most of what we have, or one-third of the Bible is that sort of thing. And let me give you this random sampling out of the book of Amos, chapter 2, verses 6 and 7. For three sins of Israel, this is God's people, even for four, he's being poetic, I will not relent. This is the, things, the type of things that he's frustrated that they're doing. They sell the innocent for silver and the needy for a pair of sandals. They just don't care about the poor people around them. They couldn't care less. They'd rather have cheap goods than care about the poor people around them. They trample on the heads of the poor as on the dust of the ground and deny justice to the oppressed. This is what God gets so frustrated by. And then he says later in the book of Amos, in chapter 5, verse 21, he goes, I, I, I hate your religious festivals. I hate them. Your assemblies are a stench to me. Even though you bring me burnt offerings and grain offerings, I do not accept them. I will not accept them. 
Because this is what they were commanded to do. They were commanded to worship God in this way. He says, I don't want to have anything to do with that. Though you bring choice offerings, I will have no regard for them. Away with the noise of your songs. I will not listen to the music of your harps, but let justice roll on like a river and righteousness like a never-failing stream. That's what I want. Now, some of you may think like, ah, that last line rings a bell. Well, it was quoted by Martin Luther King Jr. in his letter from the Birmingham jail that he wrote to some Birmingham clergymen who were telling him to, hey, you know, we think things are bad, but you, you need to sit down and shut up. And he wrote this, this amazing letter calling out these eight clergymen who had written this letter telling him you need to be quiet and you need to just like let things lie. Maybe someday things will get better, but you need to stop stirring the pot. You need to stop you know, doing this pacifist protest stuff. Just stop it. And he quoted Amos and he's like, I don't, God doesn't want to hear our songs unless we're interested in justice. I mean, he was calling some people out and you can imagine how do you think that felt to those guys. It probably didn't feel good, but he was right. He was right. It's not often that we get to see Jesus comment on a specific story in the Old Testament, but Jesus talks about Jonah chapter 3, and it's pretty cool. I want you to see it as we, as we wrap this up this morning. Matthew chapter 12, verse 41, Jesus says, The men of Nineveh will stand up in judgment with this generation and condemn it, for they repented, Nineveh repented, at the preaching of Jonah. And I think the subtext, the not-so-good preaching of Jonah. And now something greater than Jonah is here, and you're not listening. You're not listening. You're so proud and resistant to being corrected. So here's the story in this book. The book of Amos, Amos was a contemporary of Jonah. He, he, he prophesied about the same time as Jonah. So the things Amos was saying, he's been declaring for, God has been declaring for hundreds of years, Hebrew people, you need to shape up. You need to shape up. You need to get this right. You need to get this right. And he's given them chance after chance after chance after chance, and they don't. And then this story comes along. The story of Jonah comes along, and these terrible, horrible, no good, rotten Ninevites repent immediately. What do you think the story is trying to teach us about the way we react, the way we respond to God correcting us in our lives? Now, sometimes it'd be great if God just spoke directly to you because we feel like, well, if God would speak directly to me, of course I would repent. Oh, sure. But God sometimes mediates his message through other people and other circumstances, and we are so resistant to it. Listen, church, there are some of us in here who have been dealing with the same sins for years and decades. It's not because we don't know what those sins are in our lives. It's because that we have been as of yet unwilling to repent of them. This is what Jonah is teaching us. He's trying to help us see our, the hardness of our hearts by showing us that even the worst of the worst of the worst can make, get it right and can, can repent. I want to wrap up by saying two things, two things, and then we'll... Then we'll will be done. Number one, God is not looking for perfection. He's not. And I think you know that. If he is, we're in trouble. He's looking for repentance. He's not looking for perfection. He's looking for repentance. But you got to know that God is always eager to forgive. That's what he loves doing. More than anything else, he loves forgiving because he's doing it all the time. I, I think we have to wrap up with the last verse in Jonah chapter 3, verse 10. This is what it says. When God saw what they did and how, this is Nineveh, and how they turned from the evil ways, he relented. And he did not bring on them the destruction he had threatened. God wants to forgive. He's eager to forgive. 
But here's the question we have to ask ourselves. What are those things that God has been dealing with us for years that we've just been resistant and hard and, and just una- God's been unable to crack through our defenses? God gave the Hebrew people hundreds of years, hundreds of years. And maybe he's going to give us plenty of time too, but I got to tell you, there are things that we are dealing with. There's lack of forgiveness and pride and lust and, and bitterness that we struggle with, and we just won't let God get in there and transform us. I told you, Jonah is not a book written for children. It packs a punch, and we're not even to the main point of the book of Jonah yet. It's so, so good. Join us next week, and we're going to wrap up with Jonah chapter 4, where it just is almost unbelievable, the things that happen and transpire there. But I think, I I know it's not going to be fun, but I think it will be transformative for us. So we're going to wrap that up uh, together next week. Let's say a word of prayer, and uh, we'll be dismissed. Father in heaven, we're so grateful for your word. Uh, Lord, we look at these stories and sometimes we're just so quick to dismiss them as some children's story in the Old Testament. And, uh, and I just pray that we would see this, uh, this tale with, with fresh eyes, that you would help us understand that, God, you are constantly trying to work on our hearts and there are dark areas of our hearts and our lives that we haven't turned over to you. And Lord, as a people, we struggle with wanting and desiring to repent. And Lord, I just pray that you would break Break through those tough barriers. Lord, that maybe today would be the day that we actually decide that we're going to put those things behind us and we're going to receive the forgiveness that you're so eager to give us. We thank you for this book and we thank you for the eternal truth that it gives us. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You are dismissed.